0: Hi, everybody. Before we get into it today, I wanted to give a shout out to my sponsor, simpletranscribe.com. If you're into podcasting like me, or you have a YouTube channel, or you do anything where you speak a lot, you may understand that getting a transcript for notes is kind of hard. simpletranscribe.com has helped me get the notes that I've been looking for without costing me a fortune. For just three bucks, I can transcribe any length audio file. Give it a shot too, simpletranscribe.com. All right, let's go. I'm Grant, an engineering and technology leader who will share the secrets of IT with you. Listen up, because we're about to get into it. Normally, we talk about your career and how I can provide advice to you to help you climb up the career ladder, make more money, uh, or just generally learn a little bit about the industry of information technology and engineering. In this episode, I want to take things a little bit of a different direction. You see, I've worked on a lot of very large projects throughout my career, and I don't think I've done a really good job so far at sharing some of these experiences with you all. This is the 14th episode of my podcast series. And, we have talked about, you know, lead code, DevOps, going into management, We have touched a little bit on a day in the life of a software engineer who works on top secret projects, but in every engineer's life, there are a few major projects that they get to work on. When you go work for a company, they usually hire you for a purpose and on the teams that you're going to work or that you do work, I'm sure many people listening to this episode right now, there have been big projects or efforts that require tons of people to be involved for it to be a success. And we're only in the field for, you know, 40 years or something like that, give or take. If you start when you're 20, you retire when you're 60, it's like 40 years of your life. And there's only so many things that you can contribute to in that amount of time. You know, reflecting on this, it does make me a little bit sad there to think that there's only so many years in my life and so many programs that I can be a part of. But I feel happy knowing that I haven't wasted any of that time. I've not spent seven years, 10 years in a job where I haven't done anything that's challenged me. I've constantly taken myself and and moved to a team or to a company that brings new things my way, that continues to challenge my skill set, and that I can grow new abilities in uh, just by taking on that position. In my career, I've also always been the first one to volunteer for new projects, even if I don't know how to do them, because I know that if I take on that challenge that I'm going to grow through it, I'm going to learn. It's pretty rare that when a new problem appears that anyone really is perfectly suited to solving that problem. So I can at least look back in hindsight, see my career and be pleased with where I'm at so far. I still have, if we're talking 40 years, 40 minus 15, I still got about 25 years left in my career. So I hope to have many more programs and projects that I get to be involved in that can move the needle and make an impact on people's lives. Because that's why I do this stuff, is to help other people. Now, I did start in engineering and technology because I liked solving problems. It gave me a little bit of a buzz, and I enjoyed the feeling of completion when I had finished writing a piece of software that I felt was elegant and optimized. All that stuff is what drove me into the field, but the longer I've been working in this field, the more I realized that the only reason I have a job is to help people. It's by solving complex problems, yes, but ultimately the end goal is to help them. And then as I, I grew even more in my career, I realized as a senior engineer, that the value I provided was mostly in leadership. So again, it takes me right back to the people aspect of this. And that's why I'm in management is to make the lives of the engineers on my teams better It help them to love coming into work, love the work that we do and to solve some very hard problems and grow as people. Now, as we're all growing as people, I can think back to a time when I worked at Southwest airlines. It was about 2014, and Southwest had just announced that they were going to start international flights. This is a big, big project to be working on because Southwest Airlines had only been flying to the contiguous United States. It didn't fly to Hawaii, it didn't fly to Alaska at the time, and it was just starting to announce that it was going to start flying internationally. And as you can guess, and when they change the product offering or the destinations, rather, that they fly to at Southwest Airlines, that involves flight planning and their dispatch. I was the technical lead of flight planning and dispatch for Southwest Airlines. So the flight planning and dispatch system had to uh, be able to support these mission types that they were going to be adding to fly internationally. There are a lot of different mission types that an aircraft can fly. And a lot of it is based on the equipment that is being carried on the aircraft itself. Now, I'm I'm sure that the crew has to be trained to fly mission types as well. I do think that was part of the flight dispatch system. It's been a while, uh, six, seven years since I have worked on this stuff. Uh, But the big problem that we were trying to solve was to track the equipment type in the aircraft. So I'm going to just assume that all of the pilots and uh, flight attendants, all the training of the crew was handled Taken care of in a different system because I remember talking a whole lot about the equipment that was carried on each aircraft and not so much about the training requirements. The aircraft itself was a 737. That's pretty much all that was in the fleet at Southwest Airlines on purpose because it helps reduce the uh, requirements for them to train mechanics on different aircraft type. So Southwest Airlines considered the use of the 737 a competitive advantage for them compared to other carriers who had to worry about a ton of different aircraft types and capabilities. So it was very straightforward for Southwest Airlines to manage their fleet. So when you know the aircraft type and the capabilities, and you know the crew and their training, then what you're left with is what equipment is being carried on the aircraft in order to fly a certain mission type. There are many different mission types. Two that come to mind right now were overwater and ETOPS. And I call those out because they're pretty easy to explain what the mission type requires. For overwater, you obviously have to carry flotation devices and rafts for the people in the aircraft. There may be other things, but those are the two obvious ones that you'll, you'll need. The other aircraft mission type is called ETOPS. ETOPS stands for Extended Range Twin Engine Operations. And ETOPS is the type of flight that you would fly if you are going a long distance and you're not going to be within one hour of an airport that you could land at. So you need to have an aircraft that's capable of flying these missions and mitigating that risk through having reliable equipment and through having the right types of equipment that you'll need in case something were to go wrong on that flight. So that sets the playing field here. The mission type is what we're worried about based on the aircraft and the equipment that's in the aircraft. All of this stuff is determined at the very beginning of a day and the schedule for aircraft in Southwest airlines fleet is calculated sometime in advance. I don't know exactly how many days off the top of my head, but it is done on a rolling basis. So, uh, for today, I want to say they calculated it out for the next upcoming three or four days and it was a rolling window. So when today concluded, they would recalculate that whole thing out for the next three or four days and do that every single day so that you have an idea of what the future schedule looks like for the fleet. And the reason why that's important is because aircraft will go into and out of service, things break. And so what you'll do is swap certain aircraft between, uh, we call them lines at Southwest Airlines. You would fly uh, from location to location to location on a line of locations and in the middle of that flight you can swap out aircraft who happen to be at the same airport and all that's reflected in the dispatch system. So you can swap aircraft, you can swap crew, Uh, all of those things are possible and it's basically to track who does what where and it's very important to make sure that the aircraft that you're swapping can fly the upcoming missions. The reason why this is super important is because when you start to open up international flights you get a whole brand new class of missions that you're flying. So these are things that had been in the flight dispatch system before, but were basically deactivated because Southwest Airlines didn't fly them. And now, mapping aircraft to mission type is my problem to solve. I'm in charge of the program. I'm not the only engineer. There are about 10 or 14 engineers on the team, but it's my responsibility to make sure we understand the plan for how to solve this problem. So let's talk about how one would even solve this problem. Remember, I'm just a software engineer who had graduated from college, understands how to write software. I'm not a flight dispatch guy. I'm not a pilot. Uh, I had worked in aerospace, but Southwest Airlines business is way above my head. I don't understand the ins and outs of that business. But luckily, there are people at the company who do understand that stuff, but they also don't know how to write software. So we've got to talk with one another and figure out how we can build the software to solve the business problem. Because this is a business problem. This is not a technical problem. Uh, we're not talking about what should we use a SQL or Postgres database. We're talking about business logic that we're going to write to uh, be built into software so that it's automated. So that flight dispatchers can't swap aircraft with incompatible mission types on the fly. And so that the schedule doesn't give flight dispatch uh, the option to do those things if we can uh, prevent it. So we got to build these safeguards into the software to protect the business. This is logic for the business. So we call it business logic, pretty straightforward. So let's go ahead and get into some of the technical details here. So we had a database table of equipment types, one of mission types and another table filled with aircraft. These would all be mapped together uh, through another table saying which aircraft had which equipment associated to them and then we could look this up to see which mission types the aircraft was capable of flying. It sounds a little ugly, because it was. The data relationship itself, though, was pretty thought out and flexible, but this part of the dispatch system had been written a dozen or so years prior, and had never been modified or exercised before. And that's pretty typical um, of developers back, let's see here, if this is the 2014 time frame... In around the 2000 era, it was pretty standard for engineers, if they needed to have capabilities to build a framework, fill in a little bit of the details that they needed so that it would be easily expandable in the future. In 2021, though, that's not generally considered best practice. These days, what we do is uh, we call that premature optimization. If you just need a couple of mission types in this instance, then you don't need to build a framework for calculating and determining mission type. You just need to add the two mission types that you can fly as a capability and then move on to other things that are more important. It speeds up your ability to deliver code, and then you don't get into a situation where you invested months building out a framework where you only need a couple of items in it uh, that in the future when you get around to finally expanding that feature that you don't realize, oh you made a mistake and you have to redesign the whole thing from scratch anyways. So uh, try not to prematurely optimize your code but that was the situation we found ourselves in because in 2000 we didn't know that was a best practice. That was just what people did. They were trying to think about the future and make things modular and easily expandable. So lesson learned, the field has moved forward from that place in time, and we got new tricks today that we learn uh, from mistakes of the past. So anyways, uh, the calculations worked, the framework was pretty solid and expandable, and the mission types that Southwest Airlines flew hadn't changed in like forever. So the logic existed, it was a shell, or a big half-empty expandable to-do for another time. Now was the time for us to start filling in those details. And like I said, this is pretty ugly. This table mashed together aircraft type and equipment type, and the logic was complicated. Now, these were binary equations, basically, at their very foundation. So when I say a binary equation, it's not just a one or a zero, I'm talking anding and oring. So logical equations. And an example of this, we'll see if I can do this verbally for the podcast, but uh, if you've got A and B, or A and C or D, all anded together with E. So what that basically means is like if you've got certain equipment type configurations or these other configurations then you're good as long as you're carrying a raft, for example. So it's a multi-level solution, or multi-level equation rather, is what we would call that because you've got multiple layers of anding and oring together to get a solution. In this instance, that this example here, I've got it written down so I can tell you, uh, I think this would be a three-level solution because you've got uh, three levels of gating that you're, inputs would have to go through to come to an output calling it a three-level solution is important because we're going to get to that at the end here and how we actually expanded this thing now a problem with this setup was not just that it is super uh, complicated and, and complex to manipulate but it was in a database and back in 2014 and it's probably still true today Databases were not an easy thing to update in a massive company like Southwest Airlines. When you're working a large company, uh, databases are difficult to change because at that time, uh, the scripts for modifying the schemas were all handwritten. They probably still are. When you make changes to a schema, there are multiple environments that you have to keep into sync. And at Southwest Airlines, uh, if memory serves, there were at least six copies of non-production and that's the pre-production environment and then we went you know working backwards from production to pre-production then there was a thing called itest or integration test and there were two of those environments and then working even further back there were I think there were five development environments and then backwards again you'd have your local machine that you could write software on that would connect out to the development databases so Let's add that all up. There'll be five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 environments that you would have to keep into sync, not including the production environments. So it's a lot of changes that you got to make if you just want to add a column to a database or do some other manipulation of the schema. So that number of environments that, uh, is something that you have to coordinate when you're making changes. You have to manually regression test any of the changes that you do to make sure you didn't break the software when you updated the schema. And then in this situation, because it's all handwritten and complicated to roll out, you're usually unable to roll back easily as well. So what that does is it makes the risk associated with these changes insanely large. And the level of effort and time required to make these changes is large as well. So in a mission-critical platform like flight dispatch you don't want to touch the schema you don't want to modify the database unless you have time to actually test all these changes appropriately and make sure they're not going to break something because if the flight dispatch system goes down you stop flying aircraft and that is a business stopping event so you don't want that to ever occur if at all possible it doesn't mean that database changes don't happen they did but it just means that they were very difficult to get put into production because there's a lot of stuff to do there So that's like the starting point of the the project and the technical situation, and then some of the technical hurdles to changing uh, the flight dispatch system in order to support international flights. Now, on top of all of this stuff is the actual coordination of the project itself. And you'd think that a massive project like international flights at Southwest would have been coordinated extremely well, but it wasn't. A lot of the the business requirements and in, in changes like this they happen behind closed doors without the involvement of IT, and then in this case, six months prior to international flights were included in the conversations. Like, hey, what would it take in order to support this? But by then, they've already communicated with customers. Oh, hey, we're going to start flying to Aruba in June or July timeframe. And uh, they've already sold seats, sold tickets, and then they've started marketing this effort as we're trying to figure out how feasible it is for us to build into flight dispatch. So a lot of these conversations, they don't directly involve the engineering teams. Some involve the engineering leadership who may or may not know the feasibility, but they make a random guess. And it's not a great practice to do that but it does happen it happened in this instance and we were caught uh, as an engineering team having to quickly build a solution here in six months to support international flights for southwest airlines it's important here that you don't have like a bad opinion of southwest airlines and their technology or business leadership as a result of hearing this story this is pretty standard every company that i've ever worked Some companies do it a little better than others, but by and large, there's no malice or or malintent here behind the decision makers. They're trying to do their best. Everybody involved here is. And you get the full support at Southwest Airlines of the people that you need support from um, when you need it. But in this instance, the timetable for getting this feature built was short. And that's the point that I'm trying to make. It was still an enjoyable place to work. It was still, uh, you know, we had some really good project coordinators and program managers. And it was awesome uh, all all across the board here. So let's go back to the technical uh, issues and kind of talk about the way that we worked through this. We know we don't want to change the database schema. We also know that we don't want to write a bunch of custom software that would hard code business rules in the logic of the application. We wanted to utilize the database as much as possible and then do some light calculations in the software. We really rely on our data and the data structures to drive the outcome here because that's ultimately what determines what aircraft are capable of flying which missions. You shouldn't have to do a ton of calculations in order to figure this out. The data should, by its relationship, sort sort itself out for you. So I was stressed out. I was in my mid-20s. I was the technical lead on this program. We didn't have a whole lot of time to get some solution in place. But thankfully, my background was in computer engineering. And so binary equations and logic is kind of my specialty. And uh, looking into these equations, I was having a moment when it just finally clicked in my head, and I realized, oh, this is just a binary equation. Like it doesn't look like that. You're talking about like rafts and, and aircraft equipment, and then aircrafts. But at the end of the day, if you substitute out the equipment types, you just get a bunch of ands and ors between v- values. And so, from my background, I knew of a thing called a Karnaugh map or a K-map you've not heard of that, it's a method for calculating a minimum two-level solution for a binary equation. And that's super important because that was actually the key to unlocking the solution here for us to be able to get the mission type calculated on time without having to make a ton of database schema changes. So I won't teach you how to use a Karnaugh map in this podcast, you can look that up on the side, but it, this minimum two-level solution idea is the key. So, if you've got an equation that's ands and ors and maybe some nots or, uh, you know, XOR, some other higher level functions than just anding and ORing in it, and you run it through a K map, you will get a minimum two level solution of ands and ors. Now, your equation, which may have been complicated, like the rules here for mission type, where your equation goes from what is maybe pretty compact with uh, anding and oring in multiple levels to a very long two-level solution because you've got to uh, only use ands in the first level and then or things at the second level. So you get, instead of uh, a complicated and or, xor solution, you've got uh, just this and this, or this and this, or this and this, or this and this, or this and this. And it's all the different combinations of those values you reconfigured in different ways and then ordered together to get your final solution. If you look up some examples of a k map, it'll probably make a whole lot more sense than listen to me ramble on about binary logic here. Uh, but if you've got the background to kind of understand this, I hope that it makes a little bit more sense to you. And the reason why I'm going on and on about this is because this whole two-level solution maps extremely well into a database. So that was the key here. We could actually keep all the data in the database uh, table that we wanted to keep there from the old solution, and we could add new rows for the new solution. And so in the code, when you read certain rows out of this database, the rows would contain the ending, and when you read them out, you would OR the rows together. So you got your minimum two-level solution just by the nature of your data structure. You didn't have to do calculations at that point in time. The calculations were kind of done beforehand by a business analyst who knew which uh, aircraft equipment was required for which mission type. So our analyst went through and hand wrote out all of the different combinations that we would need to add into the rows. And then we would read out and or them together and be able to say whether an aircraft could go forward with the mission or not. The reason why this is an elegant solution is that we, couldn't, we didn't have to remove the old data that was in the database table. We didn't have to modify the schema either in order to get the new functionality there, which means we could roll back if something went wrong super easily. So there's no risk. We, we mitigated 100% of the risk associated with this change. The code was simple, and if anything had failed, we were covered and we could roll back in, in a matter of minutes without breaking the old way that we had done things. And I don't want to pretend like this is the best solution in the entire world for the problem, but the solution worked and it was elegant and we got it done in time and Southwest Airlines can now fly internationally. And uh, these days, I don't know if they're still using the same logic that I had put into place uh, back in 2014. They probably aren't. By the time I was leaving that company to go work for USAA, they were going to be rewriting the flight dispatch system using a ton of brand new methods of writing software. This is when domain-driven design was starting to come into the field pretty rapidly because high throughput through our systems is something that we care about more these days than back when the first flight dispatch system had been written. A lot of the things that Southwest Airlines is doing requires billions of transactions per day. And when you need that kind of throughput in your system, then you're probably gonna want to consider an asynchronous design and that's the direction that they actually went. It was eventual eventual consistency, asynchronous, domain-driven design. Look up those buzzwords and do some research. It's pretty interesting, but that's the future for a lot of uh, high-throughput systems, Uh, the Facebooks of the world or the Twitters of the world, things where tons of transactions are occurring. It's a really great approach. And hooray, so there we go. The story has a happy ending. Everything worked for us in the end southwest airlines can fly internationally and i'm happy with the solution that we got in place but it was definitely a out of the box thinking situation where i had to apply digital electronic engineering to a software problem and i was lucky because i happened to have learned what a K-map was in college and was pretty interested in solving binary equations so i don't think that that solution is something that everybody would think of and so i'm pretty proud of myself for coming up with that idea but I was also under the gun. It was my responsibility to figure this out anyways. We could have gone in a different direction. Uh, Maybe we would have ended up modifying the database tables and it would have succeeded as well. But in this case, that was the solution. That's how it worked out. And uh, I'm very happy with the result. So I wanted to share that with you all because I think many times when you're coming out of college, you think that the professional engineers, the seniors, the technical leaders, they understand what to do in every situation. Like By the time you get to that point in your career, you got to be pretty darn good. And while you are pretty darn good, what you learn is that there are so many things that you don't know, but you're not afraid of that anymore. Like just because I don't know how to solve a problem or there's a new business issue that comes up that uh, has been unsolved. Me being the leader who's responsible for solving that problem doesn't mean that I know the answer all the time. Oftentimes when these problems arise, they're not even things that you've ever really thought about before. So you got to sit down, think through the problem, and come to a solution. And it doesn't scare you anymore. You've done it so many times that it's just par for the course. And so you do it again when the new thing pops up, and then it usually ends in a success. Pretty rarely do these things ever fail. So I think that speaks a lot to human ingenuity and uh, our creativity as engineering teams to solve these problems. I hope you enjoyed listening to my story today about uh, my experience at Southwest Airlines. I got tons more things that I've experienced that I want to record here and share with you all. And there are even a bunch of stuff in this uh, story itself that I didn't go into that I could have. Uh, but I don't want to do like one hour, two hour podcasts either. So if there are details here that I glossed over or or that didn't quite make sense, please send me an email, hello at grantdryden.com, or tweet me at tweets of Grant. I love engaging with you all. So I appreciate the emails that I've received. I appreciate the tweets that I've received. I have set up some video calls with you all as well to kind of talk about your careers. And then uh, last week, what is this? This is September 22nd, so exactly one week ago, I was presenting at a boot camp for Southern Methodist University here in Dallas as well, where I talked a little bit about my experience and helped guide some of you all through your careers as you graduate boot camp. I had a blast doing that, so please don't be a stranger. Engage with me, follow me on LinkedIn as well, and I would love to share my thoughts about you and your career and kind of help you learn a little bit more about information technology. So, thanks for listening. I will see you again next time.